Hello and welcome to One for the Road. I'm Kim Washington and I'm with Randy and Bob. Today we are with Mike Lacona. Mike is an apologist and is very stout in apologetics. Today he's going to talk about how he ministers as a teacher and as a debater. We split this one in two so we can maximize our time with him. We hope this encourages you and we thank you and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, Mike Lacona and Mike being, uh, Mike and his wife Debbie are members of Perimeter Church and uh, excited just to have you here today, brother. Thanks, Bob. And uh, we, first off, just love to, can you share a bit about your family and where are you from and uh, what brought you to Atlanta? Well, I'm from Baltimore. They call that Charm City up there. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why. <laughs> it's a good place to be from, if you know what I mean. Um, and I've been married for uh, 29 and a half years. Um, and I have two kids, Allie, who is uh, 26 and married to a great guy, Nick Peters, and uh, Zach. And he is studying to be a firefighter and paramedic, almost done with his uh, EMT school. He's uh, 22. Mm. And we have a little dog. And uh, we moved down, let's see, I mean, we've lived in Baltimore, we've lived in Northern Virginia. We lived in Virginia Beach for 14 years. Um, And uh, then we moved down here in December of 2004 because I took a position with the North American Mission Board, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I was non-denominational before then. And um, they had interviewed me and offered me the position of director of apologetics and interfaith evangelism. So I was going to lead evangelism efforts and apologetics be one of the leaders throughout the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention on this, and I uh, had a great six years with them, um, developed great network, uh, was able to work a lot with the leadership within the various state conventions, and um, really took apologetics and, and promoted it throughout those conventions. And by the time I left, I think we had four or five of the state conventions that were doing apologetics on an, uh, apologetics conferences on an annual basis, mm-hmm. so, and we had trained over a hundred people to uh, I mean, to go through a, a pretty re- rigorous program to learn Christian apologetics, and then put them in touch with the leadership of the various state conventions, mm-hmm. so that they could mobilize them throughout their churches. Mm-hmm. We created a website um, that was the North American Mission Board's uh, most uh, frequented. Uh, website. It was all on apologetics and, and things like that. And uh, we were getting like 25,000 unique visitors a month from more than 50 countries and territories. So it's kind of neat. Can you, for, for some of our listeners, um, now most of our listeners are very well educated. They get it. They understand all the Greek and the Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. But just for the few who are listening today who don't understand what apologetics is, that word, can you just put that in layman's terms? What, what, what is apologetics? Well, good question. That comes from the Greek word apologia. Uh, we find it in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, apologion, to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. Mm-hmm. So it is to provide a rational, usually a rational defense of why you're a Christian. So mm-hmm. typically that word today, when you talk about Christian apologetics, it is uh, presenting 
a defense of the Christian faith, reasons why Christianity is true, usually comes from science and philosophy and history, things like the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, scientific evidence for an intelligent designer of the universe and life itself, philosophical arguments for a first cause mm-hmm. or for a God based on the existence of what we would call objective moral values. Uh, and then it's answering some of the difficult questions like why are there... Why is there evil, pain, and suffering in the world if, if there's an all-good and powerful, loving God? Why do we still have these things? So, um, um, and to answer some of the objections provided by skeptics like atheists, agnostics, Muslims, and um, attacks on the veracity of Scripture. Hmm. So that comes, I'm sorry, Bob, I'm, I'm yep. taking over as I always do in these, yeah. these things. Um, when you say defense of the faith, I just wonder in the postmodern world how that's viewed kind of as that we're, because Christians feel like they're on, def, on the defensive all the time. Yeah. It's kind of, oh, is this another way to kind of defend? We're getting pummeled out there. Where, when are we offensive? When are we out there kind of promoting and, and, and saying, hey, being proactive? And is that part of apologetics also, would you say? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and maybe defense. I mean, that's a typical word that's used. Um, I, I think you pointed out something that's important, and that is apologetics involves the offense as well as the defense. In fact, most of what I do is offensive. Mm-hmm. So I I lecture quite often on the historical evidence for the resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus. That's one of my my areas of expertise. And also I talk about and, and lecture on, uh, more recently, a lot on the uh, historical reliability of the Gospels, why we can think that they're historically reliable. So I provide arguments, evidence for that. And then you, I, I can answer arguments against it. You know, well, were the disciples hallucinating? Mm-hmm. All right, no, now mm-hmm. it switches from offense to defense. Mm-hmm. Or um, how can we believe the Gospels are historically reliable? What about all the contradictions in them? Mm-hmm. You know, then it switches from offense to defense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it involves both, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, those are my two great questions, Bob. Thank you. I've, I've, I've exceeded my quota. Normally on the podcast, I have one decent question. He's already told me I have two great ones. So, Which, by the way, you left, uh, you, did you, you left the mission board and you began a ministry, Risen Jesus? Yes. Okay. So we're yeah. a 501c3, and uh, so right now I am duly employed. I am employed. Half of my uh, income comes from Risen Jesus, our right. 501c3. And for that, I travel. I'm on the road 80 to 90 days a year, typically uh, lecturing on college campuses, at conferences and churches, uh, speaking on these kinds of issues. And um, then the other half of what I do is I'm associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University, Mm -hmm. which is is pretty neat. Yes, I'm a member at a Presbyterian church. I'm on faculty at a Baptist university. but it, it's a neat university. It's uh, it has a broad evangelical tent. Mm-hmm. So um, we have Catholic professors there. We have Orthodox professors. Wow. We have Calvinists and Arminians, complementarians, egalitarians. Those my, like myself who believe in the inerrancy of scripture, in the inerrancy of scripture. Those who reject the inerrancy of scripture. But we all believe mm-hmm. in the divine inspiration of scripture. We believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, mm-hmm. atoning death, his bodily mm-hmm. resurrection, that he's coming again salvation by faith. Mm-hmm. So we have kind of like a, a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity statement of faith there. Wow. And you know what's remarkable and what I love about HBU is uh, despite our diversity amongst the faculty, 
we all get along. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking to myself well. right now, like, how does this not implode on itself at some point or another? And you think about it. Uh, we can understand how Catholics and Protestants get along, but Calvinists and Arminians? Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and the sheep so, and the lion will lay together wow, at some point. There you go. So you were involved in, uh, you're doing lectures now. When you say lectures, that also includes debates, I guess? Yeah, I just had a debate out at Sacramento State University um, a month ago uh-huh. and uh, so I've had three this year and mm. I've got we just uh, the other day two days ago we scheduled another one for next year uh-huh. so uh, down at uh, University of Texas in Austin um, oh. down in Austin Texas so it's a um, conservative part of the country it yeah. is, but and Austin yes. is not by any means Austin's conservative. Not Texas is, but Austin's not. Yeah, that, weird, right? that could be that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, Austin, Austin is kind weird, of weird. Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, it's not typical Texan. So there. who 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 are you debating? Uh, typically, what are they? What are the issues you're debating? Um, I'm usually debating other university professors. Okay. Um, we will debate usually on things such as the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Um, we have debated uh, on, did Jesus think he was divine? Um, we've debated on the existence of God. Uh, earlier this year, I had a debate on, are the Gospels historically reliable accounts of Jesus? Mm-hmm. But most of them are on the resurrection. Uh-huh. And again, just for our listeners, uh, for y'all listening, because we know this is the political debate season. Mm. Uh, these debates are not like the debates you see on TV between Clinton and Trump. It's educated. educated. (laughs) (laughs) We discuss the issues. (laughs) You stick to the issues. There's nothing about past or whatever. But but they're classic debates, I'm assuming. You get five minutes, he gets five, that kind of thing. There's a structure to it? Usually, yes. Uh, Well, yes, always there has Mm -hmm. been. So it's usually um, uh, opening statements from each of us from 20 to 30 minutes, somewhere Mm -hmm. between that. You know, we agree on a specific time. And then a rebuttal, second rebuttal, closing statements, mm-hmm. Q&A from the audience. Mm-hmm. Or more recently, I've kind of enjoyed doing more of a, you have opening statements, maybe one rebuttal period, and then cross-examine each other for periods where you're uh, oh. back and forth. And mm-hmm. that's a little more difficult. It's more engaging for the audience, but you really have to know your stuff because yeah. you can't, you don't have time to think about it. You either know it or you don't. People know mm-hmm. if you're winging it. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the hardest part so, yeah. is coming up with questions on the spot that you want to ask right. your opponent. Right. Um, but yeah, that's more difficult, but it is certainly more interesting to the uh, audience members. Mm-hmm. Well. As you've done this, um, do you see it evolving or changing in terms of the questions that are coming from the audience that people are asking? Or are they they asking the same questions they asked five years ago, ten years ago, or whatever? Yeah, I'd I'd say so, Bob. Um, I'm hearing the same questions pretty much. Um, You know, it's interesting. We do live in a postmodern culture. Um, but I've asked this of other Christian apologists, such as um, Gary Habermas and William Dembski. Never have I had a question on a college campus, and I've spoken on nearly a hundred of them now, where a student will say, um, there's no such thing as truth. I mean, you're talking about historical facts, but there's no historical facts because there's no such thing as truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody's come like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Bill Dembski has said nobody's talked to him about that. He usually talks about science, and he argues for intelligent design. 
of the universe and life. And Gary Habermas, he'll talk about the resurrection and he'll talk about near-death experiences and things like that. Uh, so he'll, he, he says nobody ever has brought the, those kind of questions up to him. So that is kind of interesting. And I don't know if our lectures just kind of are so powerful and compelling mm-hmm. that we convince all postmodernists out there that their view is wrong. I don't know why it is, but they, they don't ask those kind of questions. Now, that said, if we were debating on issues uh, like maybe Frank Turek, a friend of mine who debates on issues like moral relativism, you know, mm-hmm. uh, same-sex marriage mm-hmm. and uh, the abortion thing. He's debating on these ethical kinds of questions. So I would think that the postmodern kind of questions come up yeah. in his mm-hmm. debates, but I don't find them in mine. Mm-hmm. The the questions that come up are usually always the same kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Being a millennial and seeing, I'm sorry. yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, I'm sorry for my generation as a whole <laughs> that I have to associate myself with them. I'm just kidding. Now, as being a millennial, there's a there's a group of us called the nuns, essentially, who are basically swaying completely away from the church. Like they're not living off their uh, parents' faith or anything like that. And I had a conversation with a guy who I went to high school with who. He didn't want to define himself as an atheist, but he said he was secular. Mm. And in my mind, I was like, okay, I understand what you're trying to do because he didn't want to associate himself with being militant is what he didn't want to do. Um, but I'm with that denomination growing, the nun category growing, do you feel like people my age, believers my age, have a stronger need for apologetics than before? Because now mm. we're not dealing with just trying to evangelize a campus on, you know, the heels of faith that they've grown up with, it's, I'm walking away from the church altogether and faith altogether and want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like apologetics for is more relevant now for the millennial generation than it was before? More relevant? Um, Perhaps. Um, I mean, it's certainly relevant now, and mm-hmm. I find a lot of millennials are quite interested mm-hmm. in Christian apologetics, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Christian ones yeah. on campus, because they're on there and they're hanging on for their dear life. Absolutely. Because their professors are overtly aggressive in mm-hmm. trying to deconvert them. Mm-hmm. They're iconoclasts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to break down and destroy the faith of the students. I mean, I was at UGA a couple of years ago, and it's just like in the movie, God is Not Dead, mm-hmm. you know, the first one, where mm-hmm. the professor said, you know, my objective on the first day of class, my objective is by the end of the semester, you will no longer be a Christian. Mm-hmm. That's going on at UGA. It, mm-hmm. It's going on all over yeah. the country. It's in the Bible Belt. It's it's from coast to coast. I found it all over the place. So it is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that has been going on for several years. What's interesting is you don't find those professors getting up and say, "How many of you are Muslims? <laughs> yeah. You know, how many of you are Hindus or Buddhists?" By the end of the semester, you know, you don't have that. It's it. So, it there is a secularism out there but its focus is against christianity and specifically evangelical christians yeah. so the millennials who are students today they are certainly targets mm-hmm. of the academic elite the professors yeah. out there in secular universities so they definitely need it they have a hunger for it 
And as my friend and colleague William Lane Craig um, says, we are now on the cusp of a golden era of Christian apologetics. So it's a wonderful, wonderful time to be involved in it mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, the data that's coming out today from science is strongly suggesting a designer of the universe in life. Mm-hmm. That this is not, we are not here by chance. Mm. Um, and the historical evidence we have continues to go. And I mean, we're building, in, we keep building a stronger case for things like the resurrection of Jesus, for the reliability of the Gospels and things like that. We learn more and more all the time. So it is a great time for Christian apologetics. Yeah. And I'm glad students are so, the Christian students are so into it. You know, let me say, say this though, I think about that. And I think for us also, we, we, have this internet generation. And what I'm hearing him say is, uh, it's a great time to learn these things, but they're not easily learned. It's mm-hmm. not like reading a USA Today headline. Oh, I, now I got apologetics down. Or now I understand the resurrection of Jesus or whatever it might be. But our minds are trained so much to just click and point. Wikipedia is all we need, right? Google yeah. is all we need in the way we go. But I think the art and science you're talking about, it takes some dedication, right? To spend yeah. time thinking and putting facts together and all those things. It's not an easy thing, I wouldn't think. No, that's true. Um, and you're right, millennials, they have the, because of all the electronic gadgets mm-hmm. that are available today, they have the attention span of a flea. Yeah. And, I would um, testify to that. So <laughs> they uh, quit changing the subject. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, they don't want to read a book. And I find this a lot amongst my own students, and it's, you know, not I'm not unique in this. It's the the widespread experience of today's professors and my colleagues who also teach mm-hmm. from all over the country in different schools that millennial students are all the same. They don't like to read. Mm-hmm. They like to watch a short five-minute video and learn right. it all. Right. And you can get an overview of arguments and and data from there, but you can't go deep into things. And a lot of times, because of the Internet, because of the information explosion uh, that we're in if you want to go deep you have to go past the internet you know so that there are informational footnotes and you know other readings and and um, source resources that you can go to but it is going to be the responsibility it is the responsibility of someone like myself who wants to communicate and and i really strive toward being a good communicator mm-hmm. um it's our responsibility to break it down into bite-sized, mm-hmm. intelligible uh, components that a person who has that short attention span and yeah. wants the five to ten minute YouTube video, yeah. um, we have to break it down into things like that. Yeah. We have yeah. to. So that's the kind of things that we want to be working on. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I, I uh, appreciate about you and... Uh, which I learned from you uh, we had, when we had lunch once. At, uh, what you do is that on these debates that you will uh, have dinner with the person you're debating. And, and you said that, uh, with maybe the exception of one, I have a good relationship with all these people that I debate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I love that because there's a sense of which... You know, even though you feel like maybe Christianity is under attack, you're going on the offensive, but you're doing it in a winsome way. You're not like, you know, 
I'm going after you, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to present what I believe to be the truth. I'm going to do it in a winsome way. I'm going to do it in a, in a confident way. And so uh, any encouragement that you would have, and maybe uh, kind of piggybacking on some of the things I just said about you and what you do, but any encouragement that you would have to our listeners about, okay, because some people just have Christianity as an attack, we're going to hunker down, we're going to be... We're going to be in a defensive posture and, you know, they're out to get us type thing. And rather than going on, you know, going forward in a winsome way and say, no, we're going to present an opposite view here. So what what do you think would help our listeners in that? Well, I appreciate you bringing that up, Bob. And I learned that from a mentor of mine, Gary Habermas, who um, he doesn't debate so much now, but he uh, he liked to do that with his opponents and uh, before a debate. And um, I picked it up, and I thought, you know, I, I think that's a great idea. And and the reason I do it, and the and the reason he did it is because we can tend to think of the person on the other side. We can tend to demonize them. Oh, those mm-hmm. wicked, horrible atheists! And they can be thinking the same thing about us. Mm-hmm. And um, by sitting down and having dinner with that person, um, they can see I'm just a normal person that I don't have all this hatred in my heart toward them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, I've seen it on every occasion when I've been able to do it with, with them, that they don't have that hatred or dislike toward me either. So we're able to have a collegial discussion, and I think it, it adds a dynamic to the debate that comes afterward that's, that's good, a good dynamic, because um, it can foster, hopefully, when others see that, my opponent and I are treating one another respectfully, that we can have sharp disagreements and yet treat one another respectfully. Um, hopefully that that will set an example for others that, you know, they can say, well, if they can do it, you know, I can do it. And one thing I, I have, Bob, I have people ask me quite often, how, how do you remain so calm up there? How, how is it that you know, when I'm listening to the debate, I just want to get out of my chair and smack that, that guy. guy's lying. Yeah, he's lying. lying. Um, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's just not my experience, especially once you get to meet that person. Mm-hmm. You see that, you know, they're a pretty good person. Mm-hmm. They're a pretty mm-hmm. normal person. And, um, and you know, you meet them and you get used to them and it breaks the stereotype in your mind. And so you just don't want to do that. Besides, you don't want to do that as a believer anyway, right? Right. Um, you're su- if you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, well, what about those who aren't your enemies and don't persecute you but just have disagreement with you, mm-hmm. even if it's on the most important thing in your life, your your worldview, you know, of course you're supposed to love them. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it's, uh, I appreciate the fact that you're modeling that and, uh, who knows the the fruit that that would bear just to, to see that happening? And I'm, we're excited uh, just to to just hear about this and and learn what you're doing. And I would love to be able to uh, for us to maybe kind of come across, you know, deal with some of these topics that you're debating right now and sort of unpacking a little more so these our listeners can hear about some of the issues that are arising. But I uh, I appreciate this introductory time we did. Look forward to having some more times with you on, on uh, one for the road. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Absolutely.